Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, February 12th. Remember those Freedom 55 commercials from years ago? Well, they were memorable. They may not be all that realistic, particularly these days. We discuss just how big of a nest egg you will need in 2024 and beyond to retire comfortably with Martin Mathewson, Portfolio Manager at BMO Nesbitt Burns. Next, we pour over the latest data surrounding juice consumption and kids. We get the thoughts of Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician, on why your kid's favorite juice drink may not be the healthiest option for hydration. And finally, with Valentine's Day a mere days away, are you worried you'll never find that perfect someone? We speak with author Carla Manley about her new book, The Joy of Imperfect Love, The Art of Creating Healthy, Securely Attached Relationships. Are you ready to retire but worried whether or not you've saved enough money? BMO's annual retirement survey is out, and joining us to discuss what each generation needs to save to retire is Martin Mathewson, Portfolio Manager at BMO Nesbitt Burns. Good morning to you, Martin. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. Well, I can't believe we're going to disclose this, but Sue and I we're both part of Generation X. There, we've dated ourselves, Martin. Um, so within that Generation X bracket, before we get into the survey, we're just very concerned about ourselves. How much do we need to save to retire? Very interesting question. And uh, as you saw from the survey, there's kind of a range of numbers out there. I, I actually like to flip the question. I think it's uh, interesting to understand what you need to spend in retirement. Mm-hmm. Then we can kind of back that out and, and find out what, you do need to save for retirement. So kind of flip the question, but it's definitely a range. Depends on the individual, what kind of spending you may have in retirement and kind of what your goals are. Um, so kind of an interesting question with probably not a, a clear answer for anyone. <laughs> so how does it vary then, Martin, by generation? Like we talk about being part of Gen X, but it do- does it vary by generation? Yeah, I think every generation has maybe a little bit, bit different uh, tall, or thoughts about risk and what they've gone through in life, um, the experiences that they've they've had uh, shape kind of their their feelings about how much they may need to save. So it, it can be different across the demographics, but I think generally uh, the key is to get started early when you when you are thinking about retirement and try to put away as much as you can for that uh, that future date. I'm just wondering, uh, Martin, is this something, you know, because you, 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 you're pr- very pragmatic about it. Say, okay, well, do it backwards. Don't think of the number. You know, work it backwards. Find out how much you spend and how much you're planning on spending, you know, in retirement. But is this truly something that I can do, uh, me and my spouse or me and my family can do alone, or do I have to go to a professional to get these numbers down? We really think it's important to use professionals uh, in this case. I mean, we can really map out a financial plan for a family and, and take a look at all the different factors that go into retirement planning. It's really savings only one part of the part of the equation. There's there's many other factors that are really need to be looked at, inflation, rate of returns, how you structure investments. So I think a professional really gives you that added edge to uh, put together a really uh, comprehensive plan that suits your own individual needs. Martin, is it is this sort of where we're at where we, it, this is a time, right? We should be looking for some financial advice from, from people who know and understand. Times are tough for all of us. And as you look to retirement, it can get pretty confusing. So what's the benefit of seeking financial help from a professional, say the bank that where you do your banking or, or anybody else for that matter? 
Yeah, I think we can actually br- bring another sort of set of eyes and ears and, and, and knowledge to a set of problems for a client and, and be unemotional about it as well and kind of take a, a mile-high view of where they're at and, and really give them interesting areas that they maybe are doing well in or where they could improve on. I think it's just using experts around you to kind of help you know give you that uh, extra information that you may need on like I said where you're on track or maybe where you need to improve and I think that's where professionals can come in and, and really provide that added uh, edge for for a family that's looking to you know plan for retirement having some time this morning uh, with Martin Matthewson portfolio manager at BMO Nesbitt Burns and Martin it, it's interesting because years ago RRSP was king. That was what we're going to do for retirement. But now, considering the current economic climate, how crucial are RSP contributions for those who are looking to retire? I, I still think they're they're a real key for families. Um, I, I look at them as your individual pension plan. In a way, it's kind of a, a key savings tool. The government does give you a, a, a duct deductibility of contributions there's some tax savings when you do put contributions in and all the growth in an RSP is tax deferred so really you can have 20 30 40 years of compounding tax-free growth Um, when you do take funds out they are taxable uh, but uh, it is a really good program but over time we've seen other programs launched by the government tax-free savings accounts are now available available for savers Uh, we just saw recently or last year the first home savings account was open for uh, investors so uh, a few different tools for uh, people out there but our RSPs to me are a cornerstone for retirement savings. Martin we just got a, a text in from Yancey who says it seems like the government on all levels are taking more and more every year so who can retire so I mean how do you answer that there's a lot of people who are just kind of feeling like uh, I've got nothing I've got nothing left. Yeah, it's you know it's it's t- difficult for sure for families. A lot of we've seen a lot of inflation over the last couple of years. The cost of running a household's you know higher and higher each year. But I think savings uh, is such a key. Trying to put away a little bit each month if you can, um, just starting as early as you can and and looking at that end date of retirement and and knowing that it can approach quickly sometimes. So um, trying to be systematic about it and and put what little amount you can away each month is, um, you know, all we can really ask for for people. I think that's a a key um, when, when you're looking at that longer term planning. And Martin, to that to that point, uh, you know, to a certain extent, uh, uh, we have seen, but I'm wondering if it's uh, been an impact in your world yet. Uh, people kind of moving away from home ownership, choosing to rent instead. And I know that this happens generally for people under the age of the Gen Xers. But have you seen that impact yet, or is that to come, where people won't have that nest egg to draw from that they perhaps would have, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, I think we don't see it as much in the clients that I work with, but generally I think that is a concern. Uh, home ownership costs are, are very high, so uh, people are shifting around their <clears throat> their expenses and trying to find ways to make it work, and uh, whether renting or home ownership, I mean, you have to look at the math of each side of the equation and, and see what works for you as an individual. But, uh, yeah, buying a home isn't um, you know necessarily affordable for, for everyone out there these days. Uh, an interesting conversation, one we have to keep talking about, and uh, it'll only get better if we can help get some help to figure it out. Thank you so much for joining us, Martin. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on today. Have a good day. It's certainly a staple in my house. Juice.
The kids love juice. Sometimes they won't drink anything else. Uh, But now we're hearing that it might not be the best choice when it comes to the health and well-being of our kids, particularly and maybe when it comes to their weight as well. Joining us to discuss is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. I want to break this down because, you know, and I feel good about myself because I usually mix the juice and I get 100% uh, you know, uh, not from concentrate juice, and, and I mix it half with water for the kids, but apparently maybe not the best choice. Is that right? Yes, and it's all about uh, the sugar in it for the most part. So it's certainly better than sugar pop, mm-hmm. but it's almost similar in sugar content. So you're getting a lot of extra calories when you don't want it. And if you really want fruit, you should eat fruit as opposed to fruit juice. So the fruit, the actual fruit and vegetables have fiber. They have all the same vitamins and minerals, etc. But it's the fiber in the diet that's actually really, really good. So by eating actual fruit, you get a better benefit that, that you lose, unfortunately, by drinking juice. I mean, we know, right? It's not anything, this is not anything really earth-shatteringly new. We know it's full of sugar. It's not the best for us. Or are there some better options? Maybe, yes, fruit is the best. What's the number two best thing? Is there a better juice than others? I think if uh, diluting it out is probably your best option more than anything else. So I, I personally do like juice, but I, I put like an eighth or a quarter of a cup and then fill the cup, the rest of it, with, with water. So I get a little bit of the taste of the juice, but getting most of my uh, volume. So really cutting back on the sugar. So anything like that is probably better. A true concentrate, like from the actual uh, fruit, is better than a made-up product. You know, orange juice is actually not even or an orange mm. juice. Like a, a Kool-Aid that tastes like orange is absolutely not good at all. So at least if you're going to have a fruit juice, have the real thing. But dilute it out. If kids are thirsty, we know that they can drink a huge amount of fluid. So giving them orange juice, say, or apple juice, they could drink, you know, 12 ounces, 16 ounces because they're thirsty. So that's, that's just, again, too much sugar. Uh, the load of sugar is the problem here. It's interesting because you said, yeah, the juice perhaps better than the, the soda pop is straight up, you know, a Coke or Pepsi or Mountain Dew, one of my favorites, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering about, because my kids have asked before, and I think it could be the marketing when it comes to, you know, the sports heroes. What about like, a, for example, a Gatorade or a Powerade, some of these electrolyte replacers? Can we mix some of those in or are they bad for kids? I'm not talking about the, the Red Bulls and stuff, but the, you know, the Gatorades or Powerades. Yeah, so again, you have to read labels. Most of those products are very sugared also. <laughs> so uh, they're, they're uh, sold as electrolytes, uh, etc. But if you actually look, you get actually way more sugar than you do electrolyte. So again, be careful with that. And the Red Bulls and all those products mm-hmm. are a different world, again, because they're caffeinated. So really should be avoiding that. Uh, but again, read the labels and look how much carbohydrates are actually in these products. Is it more electrolyte, more sugar? Uh, So there's nothing wrong with the products, but again, be very careful with how much kids are drinking. Okay, so what if I just give them diet juice, etc.? What about that? (laughs) So again, uh, sugar supplement can be a problem too, but uh, so if it's uh, not sugared or no sugar added might be a benefit here. Absolutely. So again, reading labels, you know, in regards to how much fluid volume, how much carbohydrates are we actually getting with that product? Read your labels, and that helps us out. I really think we've squeezed everything uh, we can from this segment, Dr. J. Aren't you glad uh, this is over? Hey, I'm a nat- oh, naturally ooh. sweet. <laughs> Thanks so much, uh, Dr. J. We appreciate it. You betcha.
Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. At 6.05, real love. Oh, it can be messy and imperfect. But ahead of Valentine's Day, our next guest is offering up some profound but easily digestible insights for maybe building healthy relationships. Joining us now is clinical psychologist, author, podcaster, and advocate, Dr. Carla Manley. Good morning, Carla. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, You've written a new book. It's called The Joy of Imperfect Love, The Art of Creating Healthy, Securely Attached Relationships. Can you break it down? I mean, there's no perfect love. Isn't all love imperfect? All love is imperfect, yet trouble steps into the room because we're raised on the ideal of perfect fairy tale type love and social media perpetuates that myth myth because we have so many images and stories that show a perfect type love. So those in relationships that are really good actually feel terrible about their own relationships and those in not so good relationships feel even worse. Mm. Okay, so we've been fed this picture of love. You're saying that that's not the case, Dr. Manley. So how do we reframe our expectations and reframe our definition of love? The best thing we can do is to really look at love as a work in progress, as something that if we take it seriously, whether it's love for a romantic partner, children, friends, that if we work on love, because we are not perfect beings. And so love can get pretty hard when we're grumpy, when we're going through a rough spell, when somebody's acting out. So the idea behind the joy of imperfect love is to first look inside ourselves. What are, what are our expectations for love? Where did they come from? What's our definition of love? Look at whether or not we have a secure attachment. And attachment theory is one of the most well-researched theories in all of psychology. Discover what our foibles are, what our strengths are, work to shore up our weak areas and really embrace our strengths as well, and then bring all of that energy into our relationships. And when you follow that paradigm, you find that not only are you more joyful as a human being, more satisfied, but that your relationships and the kind of people you draw to you tend to be much healthier and more satisfying. Mm-hmm. Can you touch on that a little bit more, the secure attachment? the sec- You know, it's part of the, the, the title of your book, Securely Attached Relationships. What's a secure attachment in a relationship? How, how, how can we define that? We have two types of attachment, secure and insecure, and the insecure breaks down into three, three types. So what we want to do, even if we didn't have a great childhood where we became insecurely attached because of family dynamics and parental patterns, the lovely part about attachment theory is that we can earn secure attachment. We can be in relationships with other people in a healthy relationship with the self and really come to be able to attune to the self, attune to other people, and choose to be with other people who attune to us, meaning they create emotional connections. We find them important. They find us important. So we rebuild that strong inner core that's vital for self-esteem and healthy relationships. 
So how much should we look at, for example, being our personal responsibility and not the person sitting across from us? How much uh, do we have to take uh, as ownership for the success of a relationship versus putting it on the other? That's such a good point. And some people say it's 100% your responsibility, 50% your responsibility. I look at it more as if you're in a relationship that's toxic and the person across from you or in the relationship doesn't want to change, you have no responsibility there if you're doing everything you can to be kind, respectful, full of integrity, a good person. It's generally best to step back from those types of relationships. If you're in a relationship with someone where you're both having hiccups, wobbles, and those are normal, but we just need to know how to navigate them gracefully and with um, openness and honesty, then it becomes each person's responsibility to do their self-work and then the work in the relationship. And that's where it gets so messy because it's not easy, but the upside is the more that you learn to work through issues like conflict, touchy subjects, a non-meeting of the minds, the more you realize that you are becoming a stronger individual. So it's a win-win when everyone is doing their work. Dr. Manley, do you think this is easier for us to achieve sort of later in life? I mean, you know, I can use myself for an example. I have lots of friends. You know, a, a, a sort of a second relationship later in life because we've learned all the lessons through the first one and then we kind of understand that love can be messy and imperfect, but we find the things that make that imperfect perfect for us? Absolutely. I think for many of us, I heard recently that the first marriage might be a practice marriage. Mm where you're learning a lot about life, but also a first marriage often occurs when people are very busy raising children, getting their kids going, and the idea of doing self-work seems like a luxury. So often as we get older, we have a bit more bandwidth and life experience to look at how we want to evolve, if at all. The other interesting aspect is many people didn't grow up with self-help, mental health mm -hmm. being normalized. There was such a heavy stigma. But younger generations, I really applaud them because they are embracing the idea of self-development, of getting into therapy. I have clients um, who don't have much you know, in the way of funds, but what they do have, they invest in therapy. And I really find it beautiful because they're getting that foundation much earlier in life. They're curious. Speaking this morning with Dr. Carla Manley, a clinical psychologist, author, podcaster, and advocate. The book is called The Joy of Imperfect Love, The Art of Creating Healthy, Securely Attached Relationships. Dr. Manley, who, did you have somebody in mind when you were writing this book? Um, you know, how, what are you thinking about when you're sitting down at the computer as far as who the audience would be? When I'm at the computer, I think about my current client population, the groups I work with, and what I see in the world as a whole. And also, of course, my clinical experience and life experience can't help but be woven into the books. So it comes from not only a lifetime of experience as a woman, as a human being, as a partner, as a parent, but, and as a child, but also I really stay abreast of the current research. And when I was called to write The Joy of Perfect Love, everything aligned because I realized this is a book that will help people feel 
safe and loved in their homes and in their relationships. And that's what we need in today's world. We need people who are feeling safe, secure, non-anxious, and getting that kind of support they need from themselves and from those people in their lives who are significant. Because I really believe that home is where we start from. I love it. Ahead of Valentine's Day, maybe we take a look at our relationships, but uh, on this Motivational Monday, perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Dr. Carla Manley is a clinical psychologist, author, podcaster, and advocate. Her new book, The Joy of Imperfect Love, The Art of Creating Healthy, Securely Attached Relationships.